welcome to episode 87 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is the podcast where we debate difficult decisions about reading and books. I'm going to say two things before we start off. One is, apologies if you can hear my neighbour who's been strumming their hedge or something for the past four hours. Uh, <laughs> That's going on in the background People somewhere. in their gardens right now and DIY. Very annoying. Um, guys, just let your garden go to to act like I have with mine. Um, the second thing is you might have noticed, depending on which where you listen to this podcast, that we have a new logo. Mm, Lovely new logo to, designed by uh, a graphic designer I know called Ellie. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Ellie. Um, it's not showing up in my podcast app. We've still got the old logo on mine, so you might not <laughs> be seeing it. But if you have a look on Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, then you'll see it there. It's very. I think she gets the spirit very well, very sort of... Like yes, 20s, it's very, very deco. Yes. Um, and I wanted to make sure I remember to thank Ellie for that. So, job done, tick. Um, how are you, Rachel? What are you reading? Um, I'm fine, thank you. I'm on summer holidays, which is oh, nice. Yes. Um, they're obviously limited in where I can go. Um, I am not doing very much at the moment, pottering around, which is my favourite thing to do. Um, and I've just finished actually a uh, girl, woman, other by Bernadine Evaristo. I think that's how mm. you, uh, which jointly won the book of prize last year with Margaret Atwood's the Testaments. That made me uh, so cross. <laughs> so now I've read both of them. I'm able to, to have a, an informed discussion about whether I feel that was the right decision. Okay. Um, yeah, which evidently it was not. I mean, Girl, Woman, Other. I mean, I expected to hate it because it's like on paper, it's everything I hate. Okay. Um, but I was absolutely hooked. Could not put it down. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. So well written, so inventive and different. And all the voices were so distinctive and well crafted. And it was just one of those books that you finish it and think, I've learned a lot about people I would never normally have come across. And I feel like I'm... I'm more sort of aware and um, empathetic than I ordinarily would be. Wow, that's um, amazing. Yeah. No, I really, really enjoyed it. And I loved the concept of it and how she tied all the different characters together. Because there's 12 different characters, which um, and then none of them are... So they're, they're sort of split into three chapters. And you've got um, four characters per chapter. I think that works out. Yeah, that does. <laughs> You're uh, fine, yeah. It's like when I try and divide kids in the class into groups and they're always like, no, just let us do it. Um, <laughs> and there's each of the four characters in each section are connected to each other, but then there are also subtle connections to all of those characters within the other like chapter sections as well. So you kind of see, it's a bit like that kind of six degrees of separation thing. You see how different people's lives touch yeah, other clever. people's lives. Yeah. And sometimes you see... So, for example, that the, there's a really powerful pairing of characters, one of which is um, a, a teacher and who's, you know, in her in the present day of the novel, she's in her 50s, and um, a student of hers that she mentored who's now in her sort of late 20s, early 30s. And you see the same situation from both of their perspectives and you see how easy it is for people to misunderstand each other. And it's just really, really interesting in that way and really interesting how she's, paired her characters and it kind of challenges your expectations as well um so yeah i just really enjoyed it so i would really recommend that if people have looked at that and thought i'm not sure that book's for me then i would really encourage you to give it a try um and you know obviously it's a travesty that she didn't just win the book prize on her own merit because i don't really see why margaret should have been given 
the Booker Prize for the Testaments because it was rubbish. But you know. well, what made me cross? I mean, not I didn't really. I've not read either of them, so I, you know, I'd have no opinion on who should have won. But the, mm-hmm. their only job was to pick one winner. Well, you can't no. just feel like, oh, we can't do it. It's like, well, that's that's literally the only purpose you have as a group is to pick exactly. a winner. If you can't do that, then you shouldn't be a judge of this prize. Exactly. I mean, I'm not being funny. I am the first person to break rules. But ultimately, when it's a prize and the prize is one person has to win, you know, obviously there's always going to be a difficult decision. There's always going to be people who who don't agree. But ultimately, you do have to come to a consensus. And giving a prize to two people dilutes the achievement. And especially in a year when it was the first black British writer to to win and the first black female writer as well, um, I thought that there could have been a bit more sensitivity. Okay, you know what? You should have given Margaret Atwood the prize for The Handmaid's Tale 20 years ago. You didn't. <laughs> like, you can't correct that now. Besides, she won the Booker Prize for, um, oh, what was it called? Uh, the Blind Assassin anyway. So she yeah, she's fine. She's fine. It's not as if she hasn't had enough accolades. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Come on, just, everyone. Just a terrible book. The worst book she's ever written. And oh, it's well. a yeah. slap in the face that she won it for that. But anyway, that's a different debate. Um, and I'm currently immersed in a wonderful book that I nearly finished, non-fiction this time, um, called Humankind, um, A Hopeful History of Mankind, which is translated from Dutch. Um, and it's a book all about how basically history tells us that humans are horrible people. And it's by a um, philosopher, like a modern philosopher, a Dutch philosopher. And he actually unpicks all of these kind of myths and experiments that have been done over the years that that try and prove that humans under situations of duress and whatever else are, are horrible and actually shows that goodness is inherent to humanity, which is kind of something that I feel like I need to read right now. So, um, And one of the cures he suggests for, well, one of the reasons he suggests why humanity is becoming more pessimistic over time, which I 100% agree with, is the proliferation of news where you know everything is available to us all the time and the news media only really chooses to publish negative stuff so we're just surrounded by this mire of negativity the whole time even though most of what goes on in the world never gets reported so yeah a good read very good read very thought-provoking and very easy to read as well the translators have done a very good job great yeah, sorry, that was very long. Um, how are you, Simon? What are you reading? I'm, yeah, I'm all right. I realised I was so keen to remember to thank Ellie that I forgot to say what we're doing in this episode. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Well, only I'm... 87 episodes in. We'll learn what we're doing soon. So in the first half, we'll be uh, comparing biographies with novels about real people. And in the mm-hmm. second half, we'll be doing Emma by Jamie Austin and Crossrigs by Janet and Mary Findlater, Findlater, Findlater. I didn't learn how to pronounce their name. Would you say Findlater or Findlater? I think I would say Findlater. Okay, I'll stick to that then. But I don't know. Has to be corrected. Yes, any Scottish correspondent who knows how that is pronounced, do let us know. I'm sure you will. Um, I am reading a book called The House in the Country by Ruth Adam. Which... Oh, that's one of the... Um... What are they called? The Furrowed Middlebrow yes. books, yes. Um, it's, I think it's out by, um, in August by the time this podcast goes live. Hopefully it will be available. Um, it is so wonderful. I'm really enjoying it. I'm halfway through. It's, in fact, absolutely for the um, first half of this episode, it is fictionalised memoir, I guess, or novelised yeah, it's basically based on fact. I'm not sure how much is true, but it's about Ruth and her husband and 
um, six friends deciding just after the end of the Second World War to rent an enormous manor together. Um, and we're told in the first line that it doesn't go very well, which is, <laughs> uh, which is quite sad because the first, at least first third, is all very joyful and lovely and you see what a dream it would be. And things are gradually starting to creep in about how it's not as good as they were hoping. For example, they've, they've just not they've not had water for the past week at the moment. Right. So, yes. so do, do they have arguments or is it just, you know, circumstances conspire against them? Both. There's a bit of a falling out. A few people have left the, the commune already. Right. Um, uh, but also, yes, various circumstances and goings on and the village aren't very welcoming all the time yeah. and all that sort of thing. But uh, despite all of the trials and tribulations that they're going through, it's still, I'm finding a really heartwarming and, and lovely idea. I mean, I don't think I'd do it, but it's nice to read about other people doing it. You know, I've always wanted to, to start my own commune. I can see you as a cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it would be a nice cult, though. Yeah, one of the lovely cults. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm listening to Emily Maitlis reading her uh, biography, autobiography, Airhead. Which, oh, okay, yeah. It's interesting. It's sort of, I say autobiography, it's, it's basically each chapter is essentially a column uh, turned into a chapter where she talks behind the scenes about particular big name interviews she's done with, whether that's Emma Thompson talking about the Me Too movement or um, reporting on Hong Kong protests or, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, a lot of the times he seems to expect you... Well, you, you get enough of information about the interview so you don't actually have to have seen the interview. But right. I get, there is also a sort of latent uh, sort of implication that you probably have seen the interviews when it was first on and you just need to be reminded of it. And most of the time I haven't seen the interviews. Um, no. But, it's, yeah, it's really interesting sort of look into I mean her life sounds so exhausting you know she <laughs> get a memo saying you've got to fly to the other side of the world to report on xyz and then she's going off you know in, in the middle of the night trying to learn everything she needs to know decide what angle with her producers like what angle the interview will take learn everything about the person she's talking to that she doesn't already know I just can't imagine caring about my job that much <laughs> no, unless I mean, my that's... employees are listening and in which case I'm very passionate but I, yeah, it, it. She she seems amazing. Um, so well done, Emily. Great. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about that Ruth Adam book. Is it the same Ruth Adam who wrote A Woman's Place that's it published by Persephone? Is indeed. Yes, yeah. which I actually haven't read. Um, it's very good. Although I have read The House in the Country, the Jocelyn Playfair Persephone book. So it's a Persephone mm-hmm. title and a Persephone author mashed together in this wow. a new book. A wonderful marriage. Exactly. Um, yes, as always with the Furred Middlebar books, I want to read all of them mm. immediately. But, um, yeah, they always sound very tempting, don't they? Very much so. Yeah. So do go check those out. Um, great. In the first half of today's episode, as I just said, we're looking at um, novels featuring real people versus biographies, potentially of those people, or potentially just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll leave autobiography autobiographies out of this one, just to narrow the field slightly yeah um and as we were chatting before you asked me to name a few um to get you thinking so i'll go over the ones i named then that were the first that came to my mind um and i realized that four on four occasions i've read novels featuring virginia wolf yeah. uh, um which are vanessa and virginia by susan sellers 
uh, Vanessa and Her Sister by Priya Palmer, The Hours by Michael Cunningham that we did uh, an episode on a little while ago, and Virginia Woolf in Manhattan by Maggie G. And um, of those, the first three try and imagine what her life was actually like, uh, two of them from the, largely from the perspective of Vanessa Bell, her sister. Uh, the Hours obviously has a few different narratives in, but one of them is just her writing, Mrs. Dalloway. The last of those, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan, is rather more fanciful in that it imagines her being, not reincarnated, but it's reappearing in 21st century Manhattan um, to a wolf scholar, and she has to try and, and try and work out what's going on, try and keep control of her as she runs right across the city. <laughs> um, it's it's a uh, yes, <laughs> it's not naturalistic, and there are some scenes of featuring Virginia Woolf that I never thought I'd read, which people who've read the novel will probably understand what I'm referring to. I'm not comfortable saying it on a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've read quite a lot of biographies of Virginia Woolf as, as well. Uh, I think my favourite being Alexandra Harris's. I'd really recommend that. It's only 197 yeah. pages or something like that, but she gets so much in not just facts, but also interpretations um, that put longer biography biographers to shame. Um, That's so, yeah. because you uh, have a personal animosity towards Hermione Lee. <laughs> Look, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. <laughs> um, but I mean, even I think I've read Quentin Bell's. I've read... Actually, maybe I haven't read any others. I've read so many books that feature her, you know, books about the Bloomsbury Group or whatever. Um, but yeah, I still think Alexandra Harris is, is the one to go to. Yes, I agree. I think hers is superb. And I like the fact that she analyses the novels. And yes, looks yes. at her life through the lens of looking at the novels first, which is a very interesting way of doing it. She don't always just want to, you know, blather on about who did what and what year and whatever else. I mean, who cares? Um... Yeah, so I mean, I've read The Hours, which I absolutely love. Um, and I think what makes that quite successful is it's not wholly about a recreation of Virginia Woolf as she was. It's about, you know, that's only a third of the novel. The rest mm. of the novel is looking at how other people have responded to her work over time, um, which I think is was a very inventive thing to do. It's one of my all-time favourite novels. Such Always a good make, book, yeah. You know, just want to like lie down and cry for a while afterwards. Um, I, uh, one of the books, a series of books actually that I enjoy the most, it's based on real people, is the Regeneration series by Pat Barker, which is, um, set during World War One and looks at, um, Sigrid Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. I think I got that right. Um, yeah. and I think that those books are wonderful and they look at the psychiatric treatment that those poets were, went under. Um, and, yeah, it's really, really powerful exploration, not just of war, but also of friendship and um, also the early days of, of psychology and the understanding of you know how conflict affects people. Um, so, yeah, those I really enjoy. Um, and I've also read Sigfrid Sassoon's um, very sort of loosely, I, I think they're kind of supposed to be fiction, but they're basically autobiog- um, autobiographies, which I know we're not supposed to talk about. Um <laughs> Which are his um, uh, the memoirs of a fox hunting man and memoirs of an infantry officer and that sort of thing. So, but I felt like I got to know him better from reading the fictional work, which um, is quite interesting. Yeah, because the thing about these Virginia Woolf ones, I think the reason I enjoyed them so much is because I already know a lot about Virginia Woolf. It, it's, and to some extent, in, particularly in Vanessa and her sister, where there's lots from different 
members of the Lunacy group, um, knowing a lot about her and that group already made it... In that case, it didn't work so well because a lot of it, I could either think, oh, this isn't how they spoke, this isn't how they'd have written, mm. um, or just I already know what's going to happen in this book because I already know all the ins and outs, um, so to speak, of the Bloomsby group. Um, whereas in other cases, like, the reason I thought this topic is I've just read The Noise of Time by Julian Barnes from my book group, which is a novel about Shostakovich, oh. um, about whom I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, I, you know, I knew he was Russian. I didn't know which century he lived in or anything. Um, he said he was around under Stalin, and I don't know that much about um, Stalinist Russia or Soviet Union, or whatever it was called at that point. Um, I don't even know that, even after reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in that case, I think uh, Barnes expected you to know a lot more about him before you started, to the yeah. point where if I, he doesn't actually call, name him Shostakovich, he just gives his first two names, um, like they often do in Russian novels, for a long time. So he, if I hadn't read the blurb... Oh, Hargreed, you're in the way of me. <laughs> oh, no, you're tangled with my headphones. There we go. Um, if you hadn't read the blurb, then... Or if I hadn't read the blurb, I don't think I'd have known it was about Shostakovich until they actually spelled that on the, on the page, which wasn't for quite a while. So there's, there's a, there is a sort of... Um, if you know nothing about the person that is based, the novel is based on, then you're a bit lost. If you know everything about them, then you might be frustrated. Um, unless it's something like The Hours, where it takes a really inventive look at them, I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult, because absolutely, if you know a lot about the person, there's a sense of, well, why am I reading this? You know, what's the point in reading a fictionalised account of a life that I already know everything about? Like, where's the surprise element in this? Mm. Or, like, where's the plot going to go? Or, you know, do, why would I want to read somebody's perception of what this person's life was like? But, I mean, ultimately, a biography is a perception, isn't it? I mean, all biographies are works of fiction, too. I mean, there's a, net, a huge element of selection in what you you choose to say about the person. And there's a huge amount of selection in what people they interview choose to say about them. And when you think about certainly autobiographies that are sort of looking at older figures where there's tranches of letters and things to and from people and diaries. I mean, I, I don't know what biographers of the future are going to do now everything's online. But, mm. um, you know, again, who? how do we know how many letters have been kept and how many have been destroyed? You know, why do people keep diaries? Largely, I mean, we I always have huge discussions with the kids at school about this, you know all diaries are written with an eye to somebody potentially reading them. So how even honest are we with our own diaries? So there is an element of fiction in everything. And the thing is with fictionalised lives of people, are they any more real than a biography? That's the question. And it depends on whether you want to read something that's marketed as a story or whether you want to try and find out the facts about somebody. But when it comes to a person's life, I don't know how much of a person's life can be said to be factual anyway. So it's, um, I mean, which is a bit philosophical, I think, but it's, um, for me, like, I, I would say I've, I've often come across books that are based on the life of somebody. And I don't, um, I think for me, where, where I'm interested in reading books like that is when the author is basing it on the life of, 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 an, of their own family member, somebody who's not mm. famous, but somebody who had an interesting experience or, you know, did something amazing. So, for example, um, a book I really enjoyed in the last few years was Rachel Malik's Miss Boston and Miss Hargraves. Mm. And that is based on the story of the author's grandmother. 
um, a person whose life hasn't been documented anywhere, but a really interesting woman who was living a very daring life at a time when, you know, she was, um, well, actually, I can't say because if you don't read the book, then you won't know that bit from the beginning. Um, but somebody who's, um, you know, living a life against conventions. And that was fascinating to read. I haven't read a biography of this person. I don't know how much of it is true or not, but I enjoyed the fact that this person was real. And the fact that I didn't know anything about their life enabled me to perhaps immerse myself more fully into the story and accept what I was reading as, as being true, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, something I found reading The Noise of Time since I didn't know anything about him and didn't have expectations about where it would go, I just found often things that I assume were true sort of destabilised what would have been the narrative if it had been a novel. So, you know, he had to get married twice in quick succession and we didn't learn very much about the wives and the motivation wasn't very clear. Or, you know, things he did at different times. If you're writing a novel, you'd have made a much smoother arc or you might have yeah. put put details in more sparsely or things things that are out of character felt a bit jolting but they're all things that are true and that's why they're there but um for me i with that i found uh whilst they may be true um they're making it a worse novel structurally Mm. Uh, so i guess i mean with something like miss foster miss hargreaves nobody knows the details of that person's life so you know i don't know what whether she did or not but you can leave out details you want to you can put in details you want to and to make it a better novel and perhaps less close to you know the known details but and no one cares um but yeah to give what you're saying about uh subjective biographies a, a little while ago it was sort of a little experiment in that i read two biographies of rose mccauley back to back oh how um, interesting yeah which was a fun fun little experiment so uh, there's one by constance babington smith and one by jane emery and there's another by sarah lefinu that i've not read um, and uh, and someone had told me that you know they were very different, and Constant Spouton Smith knew her and was much you know, like hid things, and Jane Emery was quite sort of psychosexual in her interpretation of things. I actually found they were extremely similar books uh, because they yeah. were um, drawing on the same information. I imagine that Emery drew on Spouton Smith's book quite a lot. I always find it slightly bizarre when someone writes a biography of someone who's already been very heavily biographized because surely they're just going to use all the details that have already been learned before so yeah while they had different tones of writing but in in terms of essence and structure they're both very linear they both just yeah had used the information available um and i think a lot of biographies particularly up until recent years have just been here's the information we have from the beginning of their life to the end and you know that's often what you want from a biography but it's not it's, there's not a massive scope for being you know, memorable or unusual in that. No, and you know you are obviously limited by the constraints of of you know what happened to that person, and mm. also how. And I think also there is there is the problem when you're writing a biography of you know who's still alive, who do you not want to offend. Mm. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things to consider, and you have to get those people on side in order to get the biography written. I mean, I remember when I was last summer, I was in my uh, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath phase, um, where I was reading all of the kind of absolute drama involved in um, the writing of Sylvia Plath's biography and the the arguments going on behind the scenes, people not wanting certain things to be said. Was that uh, in Janet Malcolm's book? Yeah. yeah. 
and um Anne Stevenson wrote the biography and um Ted Hughes's um Ted Hughes had the um the rights to Sylvia Plath everything Sylvia Plath wrote because he was mm. still her next of kin when she died. And um his sister Olive was the gatekeeper for all of that and she hated Sylvia Plath, so she only wanted um Anne Stevenson to present Sylvia Plath in the way that she wanted her to be presented and she wanted to kind of absolve her priority was to make sure that nobody blamed her brother for what happened. So in the end, the, the biography ended up being not what she wanted or not what she felt was true because she was prevented from writing what she really wanted to write. I mean, someone needs to write a novel about that because I think that would be fascinating. <laughs> um, but that's it's there's so much that that goes on behind the scenes and the the politics and the kind of stepping around people's egos and feelings. And um, I think writing a fictionalized book about somebody can often be a more I suppose, truthful way of exploring them because you can always say at the beginning, oh, well, you know, this is a work of fiction and everything else. Um, but I can't, yeah, I'm, I can't really think of any other books I've read. I think because I'm, I'm, it's not really something I would pick up. I know I saw, um, I can't remember his name, but, um, or maybe it's the book that you'll know, somebody else. Somebody's just written a book about Sargent, the painter. And I can't. I can't remember. I know I can see the cover of the book in my head. I've seen it in the bookshop. Um, and I, I really love Singer Sergeant. He's my mm. one of my favourite painters. And initially I thought, oh, yeah, I'd be quite interested in reading that. And then I just thought, actually, I don't really want to read a, a story about someone who was real. I don't know, it just, uh, somebody famous who was real. I just think, what's the point? I, I just struggle with that. Um yeah, to go back to what you're saying about uh, novels, about writing biography, we a while ago we did According to Mark by Penelope Lively, and that's oh, yeah. writing a biography, isn't that? It was a really interesting book about, or novel, again, not based on real people, but a fun one to look at. Um, and thinking about painters, um, I mean, like you, I love Singer Sargent. I don't know a single thing about his life. Um, and I'd read almost all of Summer in February by Jonathan Smith a while ago before I realised that the painters in it were real people. <laughs> um, Alfred Munnings, etc. So that, it's weird to get halfway through a book and discover that, that it's about real people because it does completely shift how you're responding to it. Um, uh, yeah, and so, so taking the, the idea of like finding the truth of a character by writing a novel that's quite different from their life. Um, I read Alberto Manguel's Stevenson Under the Palm Trees years ago, which imagines R.L. Stevenson being um, on an island somewhere. And I don't think any of it's at all based on real life, but it's takes that that character and puts them in a new new setting and see what they'd be like there which i mean i assume he did research into stevenson's own life and perhaps there's a way that that sort of thing gets more truly to the essence of who someone was than you know a book that starts with who their grandparents were and goes through all the days one by one um I mean, scholarly in a scholarly way no but in terms of reading it and experiencing them maybe yes um and there was that phase of a little while ago where people kept writing detective novel series with famous people as the detectives, wasn't there? Um, no. Nicola Upson did one with jo- Josephine Tay as a detective, and was it Giles Brandreth did one with Oscar Wilde as a detective? Oh, I haven't come across and, those. Yeah, there's, I think there's one with Dorothy L. Sayers as a detective, and yeah, people, so it was a thing, briefly. I think it's died yeah. out now. I didn't read any of them. But... Um, that's interesting, just like plucking a character, a real person completely out of their life and seeing what you can do with them. 
Yeah, I suppose that's quite an interesting concept. Yeah. And there are much books about Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. Yes, well, there are books about them, aren't there? Well, the Brontes went to Woolworths by Rachel Ferguson. um, Yeah. Is a... Well, they don't appear very very extensively. (laughs) Um, uh, The Three Sisters by Mae Sinclair is a book that is clearly based on the Brontes, but gives them different names. Yes. And slightly different lives. Which I've never actually read. And I did have for a long time, but I'm not sure I have it anymore. Oh, I really liked it. It was good. I think I decide. Oh, no, I do still have it. I can see it on my bookshelf. I was like, maybe that's a victim of one of my many tragedies. <laughs> but no, it's still there. And she also wrote a biography of the Bronte, so it'd be interesting to read those side okay. by side. See, yeah. I don't know which one came first. Um, when I was making my notes, there is one that you read uh, a little while ago that I can't remember the name of, and I don't know how much the real person figured. The only thing I remember is there was a note in a bottle, and certainly you were given it in a bookshop in the north somewhere. Maybe in Scotland. Oh, yes, well done. Um, Now, I can't remember the name of it, but um, it's about um, Auden, I think. That's right, yes. Um, Larkfield? Larchfield. Yes, that's right, yes. No, that was very good. And again, it was an interesting, it it was kind of like um, the hours in that it's sort of half about the poet and then half about a person in the present day who's influenced or impacted by their poetry and she kind of travels back in time and, and meets him and um so the story itself was I as far as I'm aware based on the reality of his life at a particular point in time when he was working in this school um that's in the town where the um the woman is living but it's yeah it's a really um it kind of they're both joined together by the fact that they're outsiders in this place and how they both dealt with being in this place that didn't accept them and um I think that that was really really like brilliantly written and really interesting but I think if it had just been a book about him I think I would have been less interested because I I would have been thinking well hang on is this not just a biography mm-hmm. is it by Polly someone yes I can't think I'll put it in the notes yeah sorry <laughs> memory I don't have it anymore I lent it to somebody who didn't give it back to me so I know I know that is one that I've been meaning to get hold of since you mentioned it so one day um but yeah, look at talking about biographies in general. I think my patience has really worn thin for the really long linear biography. And I'm, whenever I'm reading one, particularly of a writer, I just, I just want to get past their ancestors and their childhood. I want to get to when they started writing and what happened yeah. then. Um, and and I, I, I don't know if anything has changed in terms of how popular that sort of biography writing is because definitely there's been much more memoir from insect for people who aren't otherwise famous coming out recently oh yeah people um, love that don't which, they? which i always love and we're not talking about memoir in this episode so i won't go off on that one but there's one book that i read that was sort of similar in that it's a memoir of someone sorry a biography of someone who's not famous called remembering denny by calvin trillin um which was i can't remember if you went to school with him or if you just knew knew him as a local but this you know it's a American, so he's like, you know, the quarterback and popular and clever and everyone thinks he's going to have this amazing life. And Trillin, he die, and Denny is, dies young and Trillin's sort of trying to work out how his life didn't end up um, as he'd hoped. I, it's really, I really like Trillin's writing in general and it's a good book. What, what I didn't like so much is he treats the fact that Denny became a professor as, you know, a failure. Thinking, do you know? And he wasn't at a particularly prestigious place, and he didn't have the career he wanted. But I was thinking, do you know how hard it is to get 
the role at a university at all and not just be stuck on temporary contracts for the rest of your life if you're trying to be an academic trillin have some respect for what denny achieved yeah that's a strange thing to say um i i have to say when my favorite biographer um i've only he's only written two i think and i've read both of them um is michael sims who wrote a beautiful biography of eb white and um he also also wrote one um called arthur and sherlock about the arthur Conan yeah and they're both absolutely brilliant biographies that again are focused on the work that they produce Mm. rather than you know and that's it is about their life but it's about you know what in their life inspired them to write the book and then what impact the book had on them um and he's just such a great writer and both of those books i just absolutely love Mm. yeah Um, i'm definitely one for literary biographies yes i seldom read biographies of, of anyone who wasn't an author um but yeah is there uh a person that who you would like to read a novel about Mm, good question. Um, I would quite like. I would be interested in reading a novel about Jane Austen, I suppose, because so much of her life we don't know about, um, or we make assumptions about. Yes, I've got one that I've not read by Helen Ashton, who wrote Bricks and Mortar. Oh, yes, that we did. Helen Ashton's daughter. That's I never right, yeah. that. Yeah. Maybe it's good, but there must be millions of other things. No. Um, Any recommendations would be appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, decision time. If you, um, yeah, you can think about being the same person or different people, but would you would you go biography or novel about that person? I'd probably go with biography, I think. Yes, I think whilst I've enjoyed lots of novels about real people, I just, I'm probably more biography, and then once I've got the biography under my belt, I'll go on to the novels about them. Because mm. otherwise, I feel a bit too much at sea. Yes, quite. Fab. Okay, middle section. We have a question from Greer, and I must also say. So when I when we did empathy versus sympathy last week, I thought, what a great topic suggestion, Simon. You, we can have a really great talk about this. And thinking it was my own idea. And anyone anyway, I went back through our emails to see if we had any questions, did I discover that Greer had suggested the topic some oh. months ago? So, Greer, thank you. And sorry we didn't acknowledge you in <laughs> episode 86. I had forgotten that it was not my own idea. Um, Greer also asked in that same email uh, about, generally, about our thoughts on Ivy Cont and Burnett. And I guess well, where to start. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan and I've not read any of her books because I couldn't finish the one that I started many years ago. Um, but I'm sure you'll want to <laughs> take the stand in this one, Simon, trying to save people. Yeah, on, then. So was, was it Pastors and Masters you tried? I don't know what, I can't remember. It's just an erased memory in my mind. <laughs> um, well, my answer is basically it doesn't matter where you start because they're all more or less the same, <laughs> um, which is a compliment, though it may not sound it. Uh, Pastors and Masters was her first one, um, and for a while was the only one in print in the UK. I think at the moment none of them are in print in the UK, which is scandalous. Sure. Um, and that was her first one that was more like a normal novel uh, than her later ones, because they're mostly dialogue. This uh, It's mostly people having long arguments about petty things, and then enormously dramatic things will happen in a couple of sentences. And I, I love every second of all of them. They're hilarious. Nobody writes like her. Um 
My favourites, if I was going to pick out, um, probably more women than men. It's my favourite. Uh, said in a girls' school, one of the most ingenious murder methods you find in fiction. Um, probably the easiest ones to get hold of are House and Its Head or Manservant and Maidservant, which are both published by the New York Review of Books in the US. Um, well, you know, one day I will try her again. I think perhaps maybe nowadays I might appreciate her more. Yeah, I mean, you might do. I, I do tend, still think most people will hate her, but <laughs> one, you, she really is, of all, the, you know, a lot of authors are described as Marmite authors. Is that a description that means anything outside of the UK? I don't know. You. So authors who love or hate. Um, and rarely is it more true than with Ivy Conta Bennett, because I've never come across anyone who just quite likes her. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and, and most people hate her. But if you love her, you will be devoted for life. Okay. Right. Worth giving a try. Worth giving a second try, I think. Okay, one day. One day. Mm. Um, hope that helps, Greer. Uh, do let us know, anyone, if you've got questions for this middle section, tea or books at gmail.com. Um, where to start with an author, suggestions for a topic, etc., etc. Um, and now we're going to go to Cross Rigs by Mary Findlater and Emma by one Miss Jane Austen. Um, shall I introduce us to Cross Rigs? Yeah, go ahead. So it's uh, from 1907, 1908, something like that. Uh, it's set in a little town called Cross Rigs, which is not far from Edinburgh. I mean, I don't think it really exists, but in the novel, it's not far from Edinburgh. Um, and the main character is a girl called Alexandra, commonly known as Alex, who lives with her father, a very sweet, unworldly old man called Old Hopeful by most people, who is very imprudent with money and very caring about everyone, but quite useless in general. Uh, in this small community, there's also um, a man who is very much the Mr. Knightley to her, Emma, except that he's married. Uh, he's constantly trying to get her to be a better person, and she is um, not always that welcoming of that advice. Uh, her widowed sister comes with a whole brood of children uh, to move in. Uh, she's been living abroad for a while. Um, and basically the novel is about um, her uh, possible relationships with a couple of men, and but more importantly about her trying to restore family fortunes that are doing very badly and how she's going to um, keep them afloat and how also she's going to keep her father from doing anything very stupid. <laughs> um, yeah, cross rigs. Yeah. Need I introduce Emma? <laughs> um, why not? Let's not assume yeah. that everyone knows it. But. Um, so Emma is an eponymous novel. It's about um, a girl who at the beginning of the novel is 21, one in 20. Um, and she is handsome, clever and rich, as the novel tells us, and has lived her whole life um, in the village of Highbury um, with her father. And they are very wealthy they are the most one of the most prominent families uh, along with the Knightleys um, and her father is a widower and he is very concerned about his health um, and Emma has to take great pains over keeping him calm and her main social relationship um, is with her former governess who gets married in the first chapter of the novel and it's all like oh what's Emma going to do now and Emma because um, she's bored and wants something to do, decides to um, get, have a little project. And that project is Harriet, who is 
um, a boarder at the local school for girls and she's the daughter of a, of a gentleman in inverted commas but no one actually really knows who her father is um, and Emma thinks that she has a real talent for matchmaking because she claims that she sets her governess up with Mr Weston so she decides that she's going to interfere in Harriet's love life which will go on to have disastrous consequences um, and there are many characters who are involved in the novel in many hilarious ways um, including Mr. Elton, um, the vicar, and his wife. and um, But the main interest in the novel is between Emma and um, Mr. Knightley, who is her brother-in-law, who is about 18 years older than her, um, which is apparently fine. Um, uh, not, not quite her brother-in-law, her brother-in-law's brother. <laughs> um, no, but that makes her... No, she, she is married to... Uh, he's married to her sister, so he's... Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, brother-in-law's brother. But they're kind of brother, they're loosely brother-in-law, brother and sister-in-law. Um, and it's, yeah, their relationship is wonderful. And there's lots of mystery and intrigue. I mean, there's so many characters that you'd need to know about. I can't be bothered to explain them. <laughs> but I assume most people know the story of Emma. Yes, everybody um, probably do. Yeah. Um, so listeners who've listened to an episode, I can't remember how, not that long ago, will know that you gave up on Crossroads. I did. So talk to us about your response to Crossroads. Well, do you know what? I really enjoyed it at the beginning. But what I found quite strange about it is that for a novel that's Edwardian, it reads very much like a, a kind of mid-century, mid-19th century novel. It's very um, 1850-ish in feeling. It felt a bit like a George Eliot novel. Um, and it's set in 1880s, 1890s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was one of those books that I, I kind of felt a bit like I was outside of time. It reminds me a little bit of how I feel about Anita Bruckner's novels. Um, I think that's who I mean. Um, where you kind of like you're reading something that's set in a time where it doesn't seem to fit. Um, and the characters seemed to be old fashioned for the time that they were, they were supposed to be living in. Um, and I just found the Alex, I found a great character, but she's just, her and her father was so annoying and so selfish <gasps> and completely unaware of how his you know behavior and philanthropy is basically bankrupting the family and he does nothing to ensure that they're being alex alex has to go out and get a job which is actually very difficult for a woman at that time um and her sister turns up with all these kids and with no way of supporting them. And it's like, well, I can't do anything. I'm just a woman. And it's like, for goodness sake. I mean, I just got angry at the whole thing. And then in the end, I just thought, I, I know exactly how this is going to happen. I flicked forward a few pages. I was like, yeah, I could have predicted that. There and is no way you predicted the end of that novel. Well, I read the, the last chapter and I was like, oh, whoop-dee-doo. You know, great. That's great for her. She still, you know, has to look after her dad. I mean, what kind of a life has she got? I just thought for somebody who's as clever and as kind of, you know, inspiring and thoughtful and motivated and engaged as her, she really has a, quite a passive attitude about her life. And I just found the whole thing really annoying. Um, I just, yeah, it just didn't appeal to me. By halfway through, I just thought, well, for goodness sake, somebody needs to do something here. And, you know, <laughs> it's what's-his-face, the bloke that she's really in love with, but he's married to someone else. Why did he ever marry his wife in the first place? That is never explained. Well, he wouldn't be the first to be deceived by a pretty face. Well, but um, he seemed like the type of person he would be. You know what I mean? It just he felt was young. a very odd decision to make. Well, I shall defend it in response <laughs> because I loved it. Um, 
I it, it felt to me as I agree with you. It felt like it was set a bit earlier than it than it actually was set. But to me, it felt very like a Jane Austen heroine in an Elizabeth Gaskell novel. So Alex is the same sort of impetuousness uh, and intelligence um, that characterise a lot of Jane Austen's heroines. But it's there's more about what do I mean by it being in a Gaskell novel? I don't really know. It's it's um it's a little more serious, maybe. Um, what I mean, I love her father. I mean, you found him annoying, uh. but I just adored him in the way that I adore, you know, Septimus Harding from the Charlotte um, Towers novels. Maybe he's just yeah, he's com- he's completely useless. He's got no idea what he's doing, and his and his you know ineffectualness does have an impact on other people. So in real life, I'd find him very frustrating. In a novel. I adored him. Um, he's just so kind and sweet and just wants to do the best thing and is not good at that. I think maybe I'm just, I've got much more, to go back to last month's episode, much more empathy with people who were sort of ineffectual but doing their best, maybe. Um, and he's vegetarian. He's like, I love that he's like, this is treated like a sort of embarrassing social secret in the yes. novel. <laughs> and he's always trying to get people to eat like mushroom paste. Um I just I just loved every moment of him. Um and he's very like there's many similarities between this novel and Emma to an extent that almost certainly it's plagiarism. But like Mr. Woodhouse, very similar character. Um how do you feel about Mr. Woodhouse? Because he's equally selfish and hypochondriacal and useless. Yeah, but I can understand his behaviour because I think, for me, I read his hypochondria as his response to his wife dying. Because you you get the sense from the novel that she died very suddenly of an illness. And I think, for me, I've always read into that, that he was traumatised by that because overnight his world collapsed, basically. And when, you know, a cold can kill you, um, I guess you a way of it's it's his way of trying to control his environment after having experienced a situation that he had no control over. If you see what I mean, that's very generous of you. Yeah, yes, I, that does make <laughs> it does make sense. I mean, um, I had not read this since I was seventeen, I think, and I've seen so many adaptations of it on stage and on screen. It was it's been really interesting. I've just been listening to the audiobook by Juliet Stevenson. Um, oh, lovely. And, which is great. Uh, she's a wonderful reader of Austin. And I discovered you can put, um, you can speed up a narrator. So I've had it at 1.3 speed as well. <laughs> They've done some clever things. So her voice doesn't go all like chipmunky. Um, so it does sound normal, but I just, I can't stand a slow reader. And she's not that slow, but I just want it to be faster in yeah. general. It's quite funny when she gets to Miss Bates because she puts on a fast voice for Miss Bates, um, <laughs> which gets very, very fast when it's at 1.3 speed. Wonderful, wonderful, sad Miss Bates. Um, but yes, the thing that I found reading it again or listening to it again um, is that, of course, the adaptations miss so much. And I think mm. unlike other other of her novels, maybe unlike Pride and Prejudice particularly, there's quite a lot in Emma that doesn't really propel the plot forward. And it's just there because it's either funny or develops character or, you know, I just... I know she wanted to put it there, and it's the sort of delightful things that I'm really pleased that I've experienced again this time that would never make it into an adaptation. I'm thinking things like the protracted argument between um, Emma's sister and her father about whose doctor is better, mm. which I loved. Um, thinking about 
I mean, I loved Knightley's brothers' exposition, not exposition, um, the commentary on how awful it is that anyone would ever go out when they could stay in their own homes, which is hilarious. All these sorts of things where it would just be baggy if you put them in, in, a, in a film. Yeah. But, but she just she just seems to really luxuriate in her character's foibles in this novel in the way that, she, like, I always feel in Pride of Prejudice, everything is there that puts the pushes the plot forwards, even though it's, you know, obviously does character stuff as well, but um, doesn't... And I think even in sense of sensibility as well, there's, there's much less that is just there because it's it's enjoyable and funny and she's just resting a bit between plot moments. Yeah, I think, for me, Emma is her best written novel and it's probably, I mean, if you put me up against a wall and had a gun to my head, I'd probably <laughs> say it was my favourite. Um, <coughs> I, I find it so funny. Every time I read it, I find something new in it. Um, I mean, I must have read it upwards of 10 times and I just absolutely love it more every time. And I think the thing that I love about it is that each time I read it, I see the things happening earlier and the clues coming earlier to behaviours that happen. And I remember the first time I read it, I was so shocked at Frank Churchill's behaviour. And mm. I was so surprised at the, the the twist in the the romance. I won't say in case anyone hasn't read it. Um, but then actually going back and reading it again, once you know, you see all the little yeah, slights, yeah. narrative slights of hand that she has done. To, she's like a magician in the novel. She's like constantly just distracting you away from what's really written in front of your face. Um, and it's a real master mastery of technique. And it also shows her real cleverness in understanding humans and how we want to believe what we want to believe so you've decided in the novel um that you want emma to be with this person so everything you read in the book you're going to read into that because you're so absorbed in emma's own way of thinking as well um and it's yeah it's just wonderful and i think I mean, the ending is wonderful. There's so many wonderful set scenes in there that, um, you know, the same things that the, the TV adaptations and film adaptations, you know, the, the, uh, Don Malabi when they go strawberry picking and there's that excruciating, um, picnic where Emma and Barry's mm. Miss Bates. Box Hill. Box yeah. Hill. That's it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just, I just think it's a perfect novel. I mean, if I only ever was was given one novel I had to read forever for the rest of my life, I'd be perfectly happy to just read Emma again. <laughs> yeah, I do find it interesting, like, thing, so, yeah, there's some things that are still clearly meant to be a surprise. Something like, again, I won't spoil it completely, but the twist about Mr. Elton is much more clearly signposted in the novel than ever is in adaptations. Like, someone su- suggests yeah. it to her if you chapters before it happens um but as you say you're so if you, if you were reading it for the first time without knowing what happens you're so sure that emma is right about everything and she's right about nothing um it's it's a it's amusing how wrong she constantly is and she has what a high opinion of her own good sense she she, she constantly has yeah um but i did get a lot of that nightly emma sort of um relationship between mr maitland and alex in crossriggs and i particularly when he lends some money to her father and he accepts it. Mm. Um, and then she storms back to take it back and he explains to her why, you know, she's yeah, but the thing is, you, way. you know that can never become a romantic relationship and that's the annoying thing. I think that's what I found out really interesting about it because I'm thinking if this was a novel written even sort of 20 years earlier, you'd know they'd end up together and I'm not sure how it's going to happen. Like if you were single, 
without a doubt they'd end well, up together. Well, his wife would just die, wouldn't she? Or she'd die, she'd get like a cough and then she'd be gone yeah. by the next chapter. Yeah. And I kept waiting for her to die. Does she or not? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also just realised they've been calling the author Janet and she's called Jane. Yeah. I should have remembered they're both called Jane, sorry. Um, and yeah, I found that really interesting because it was much more um sophisticated in plot than i was expecting it to be when i started i mean it's not as you know the most sophisticated novel in the world but it doesn't follow the same beats that i would expect from that sort of novel uh i was really surprised and delighted by the end that again i won't spoil um and i guess it's part of it being written during the period when the whole new women thing was happening so she's she's taking that new women edwardian idea or late turn of the century idea, putting it in this little, in a, you know, a community is set a bit earlier. I found it a really successful meeting of, and you're saying it sounds like it's in the wrong period. I just enjoyed her writing a novel set in, let's say, the 1880s that you would never have got published in the 1880s. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to convince you on this one, but... Uh, yeah. uh, um, I also find it really funny. Not as funny. It's sort of marketed as being extremely funny. I don't think it's like it's not a knockabout comedy. No, I mean I was disappointed because you know it was praise, praise, praise on the cover, and in the introduction it was like, oh, Virginia Woolf loved it, and all these other people like, really, did she? Um, I just, (laughs) I didn't see it. I thought it was going to be more, I suppose, daring or innovative than it was. But it is well written. I will give it that. Oh, yeah, so well written. I have no idea how two people write a book together. I'd be intrigued to know how they went about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say about um, If Well, if you haven't read Emma, then start today, is what I would say to anyone. <laughs> if you are feeling sad and depressed and worried and anxious in the world at the moment, as many people are, then Emma will be a wonderful antidote and distraction and it's very long and it will give you pleasure for a week or more i should think well it's particularly if you get the audiobook it lasts forever well there you are <laughs> and i've not quite finished it but i have they've just got together spoilers and um and there's still six chapters left i can't imagine what's going to happen well, it's just going to be nice i just can't remember anything that happens after that <laughs> so six, six chapters worth of something. well there's much to arrange and sort out this is the problem quite, yes yes <laughs> That's the, where the, all the films end, but um, yeah, yes, yeah, it does feel definitely her most leisurely novel in a good way. Well, that's not quite true because Mansfield Park drags on forever. But, it really does, yeah. and probably shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would definitely recommend. I mean, Crossroads is quite hard to get hold of. Um, it was a very good modern classic, but it's sort of disappeared again. Um, I think if you've read all of Austen and you're looking for something that's quite similar to fill that gap. I would heartily recommend it. Wow. Um, would not be seconded all around. But oh, Alex is a wonderful heroine. And, you know, if you don't love Old Faithful, uh, her father, like Rage does not, then you are a heartless fiend. He's adorable. <laughs> he is not. <laughs> I love him. I love him so much. He's selfish. Uh, he is selfish, but he's lovely. <laughs> oh, hello, cat. Are you, I mean, not giving you attention? Which one are you voting for? Um, <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> voting time. Um, well, see, you'll be going forever. Yeah. And indeed, this is always unfair to put anyone against Jane Austen because I will also, of course, be going forever. <laughs> but it's you know who could possibly compare, frankly. Yeah, frankly, ah, 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 
Frank Churchill. Um, great. In the oh, sorry, Hargreaves. Um, in the next episode, we will be doing two novels by Kazuo Shigeru. Oh yes. Um, um, which are Never Let Me Go and a different one. What's the other one? Oh, the remains of the day. The remains of the day. Yeah. Thank you. Um, which is, I was going to say, very modern, but I think remains of the day possibly published before we were born. But surprisingly <laughs> enough, I, I think it's an eighties novel, um, no. and even um, the, the um, "Never Let Me Go" was published in the early nineties. It feels like oh, gosh, you know it's it? really recent, but no, we're just it's about as recent as we're likely to get. Yeah. Um, great. Thanks for listening, everyone. I say, if you do have any questions um, or topic suggestions, get in touch to your books at gmail.com. You can see all the books and authors we've mentioned at stuckinabook.com. And you can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. Thanks, Simon. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can see the books and authors we mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel's blog at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books where you get bonus episodes, mini episodes and other things. Many thanks to everyone who does, particular thanks to Elizabeth, Michelle, Liana, Heather and Randy. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>